0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger.
1: And this is Dan Abuhal. But
0: Tamsin and Dan read the paper on, actually, Monday, yes. November 15th. Yes. 2021. We're a little bit late. We've been busy. busy. We're busy. We're busy. busy. You know, babysitting. Exactly. <laughs> Something like that, yeah.
1: Yeah, we got a lot more of that to look forward to. But, uh, but one of us also uh, took
0: a little vacation this week. A little trip. Yes, I took a, a little... Break from the death cleanse,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, Sadie and I made our annual trek up to Mohonk Mountain House, and uh, you and I were there recently, so you know.
1: Right, but I don't. I'm not nearly as ventric, as adventurous as you and Sadie. Well,
0: the, the only thing notable, it's all the usual stuff: beautiful, blah 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 blah. And I especially, and, and you said the leaves did were a great. lot of hiking. The the leaves were of, great. Yeah, the, the, surprisingly. Yeah, yeah. I, the drive from. Um, I will say Limeport up to uh, the New Paltz area, which is near uh, Mohonk, was um, really very nice. Mm -hmm. I feel like in Pennsylvania, we were past the peak, but 287 going through New Jersey up to New York State was really still flaming, Quite pr- beautiful, although on the way back, we came through a terrific storm, mm. and there was literally um, hail, hail yeah. hailstones all over the uh, highway. It was crazy, yeah. and big wind, So, uh, but we made it. Anyway, uh, the one big adventure that we had, we did something called the Immersion Plunge, And it's as bad as it sounds, actually. Well, you know, every uh, day they have a list of activities you can join in. Yes. And uh, I did the yin yoga and, uh, you know, we did some miscellaneous hiking. And there was something you could sign up for called the Immersion Plunge. And uh, it entailed plunging into the lake at Mohawk. Yes, in the middle of November. Yes. (laughs) And then uh, that would be followed by hot cider, and warm yoga. And this was Sadie's idea. Sadie thought we should give it a try. <laughs> and so uh, we assembled in our bathing suits. They gave us robes and flip-flops to walk down the treacherous stairs. We we thought we almost wouldn't have to do it because the day dawned quite rainy. Yeah. And uh, in which case it might be canceled but it was not canceled. The sun came out. Yeah. We were supposed to do this at one forty-five At 1 p.m., the sun comes out. Right. So we have to truck down uh, in our swim togs. And um, they explain, once we get down there, and then you said, at was, the beach. There were 10 people Next to the, the lake. lake. 10 people. No, there were 11. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, well, a, how many a, a were there, variety of ages. How,
1: how, I know 11 people went in. How many came out is the, is the question? No, no, no.
0: Ten made it in. Ten made it in. And One guy didn't in. quite make it.
1: And he couldn't brave it. But no. the ten that but made anyway, it But anyway,
0: also... I, I, let me tell my story. Oh, okay? oh i sorry. sorry. You're yes. jumping ahead. Yes. I just want to say they explained, they. so, you know, they gave us a little briefing before yeah. we go in, yeah. and that's when they say, the goal is to stay in for five minutes. <laughs> And you're like, wait a minute, it said immersion plunge. Does that mean you like plunge in and run out? No, 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 no. To get the full experience, yeah. we needed to stay in for at least five minutes. And uh, that was daunting. But anyway, we, we managed to get in. Yeah. It helped that there were 10 or 11 people there. There was some amount of peer pressure mm-hmm. and you, you forged ahead together. I'm not sure if I could have done it by myself. And I'm not sure I, if I could have done it like diving in or jumping in. Mm-hmm. The walking in worked for me, and uh, Sadie and I got in, and uh, we, you know we joked around with the people and we tried to find a little patch of sunlight mm-hmm. and uh, you know jumped up and down. Uh, it was cold. It hurt, <laughs> and it was not easy to stay in there, just for, can't five we stay there the, for five minutes. They said it's the crazy. temperature was of the water was 54 degrees. Mm. So that's nippy. Yeah. Because I know that uh, when I used to go to bobbing, you know, water, the aquatics exercise, water aerobics, mm-hmm. they call it. Um, the ladies would complain bitterly if the water temperature was less than like 82.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the idea there was 54. Hmm. Nippy. But it was stimulating. And I got to say, the hot cider and the warm yoga were completely anticlimactic and and uh, not that satisfying. But uh, it was... Uh, you said it was tingling. Tingling, tingling. yes. yes. I, I do think it has some kind of effect on my circulation. Okay. So <laughs> that was a big adventure. I can't believe you did that. I the mean, immersion that's, plunge. That's, uh, I would never do that. Uh, and I've done it now, and I won't have to do it again. Ah, you will have to do it next year with Sadie. I no, no, I no, Sadie no, 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 no. That's the kind of thing you do once. No. <laughs> you know, it's one thing if it's like a New Year's Eve. Yeah. You know, and you get together with your polar bear friends, and you do it. That's different. And it's a whole ritual and a, or ordeal and whatever. But, that might I mean, even be
1: colder New Year's Eve. I mean, there is that possibility. But then again, those people just jump in and jump out. It's the five minutes which is getting me. That, that I don't understand. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah.
0: All right. So that listen, was my big... Uh, tough?
1: You and Sadie are tough? Speaking of tough... Sadie didn't even dwell on it. Like uh, She took it in stride. Speaking of tough... All right. Speaking of tough. Sam Huff died. So Sam Huff... And the Times writes a very good obituary. You know, I will say that there were various tributes to Sam Huff. The best was in the New York Times, believe it or not. Um, they say Sam Huff, the Giants Hall of Fame middle linebacker who became the face of pro football has passed away. Uh, His team celebrated in the national news media when the NFL began to vie with Major League Baseball as America's number one sport. And that's, that's the key. That's the point. The point is that he emerged as a star in the late 50s, and he became, for a brief time, the face, certainly the defensive face, of NFL football, battling the likes of Jim Brown, the great running back, and Jim Taylor, the great running back on Green Bay. Uh, and NFL wasn't that big a deal then. But Sam Huff somehow caught the imagination of the media. Uh, On November 30th, 1959, he was on the cover of Time magazine, a portrait of Huff on its cover. He was the focus of an article called, quote, A Man's Game. Hmm. And I'm telling you, it was not popular, the NFL. And for some reason, the press seized on him. As the Times writes, Huff's fearsome aura was sealed on October 3, 1960, when no less a personage than Walter Cronkite narrated the CBS documentary called The Violent World of Sam Huff, (laughs) which became quite famous. I mean, people talk about this documentary. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, sadly, but I was aware of it, and it was one of those early situations where they put a microphone on, on a player. Probably Ooh. was the first time they did it. <laughs> and they have a quote here. It's at one point in the middle of the game, Huff turns to a Chicago Bear player that Huff believed was taking liberties and said, quote, you do that again, you'll get a broken nose. I'm not going to warn you no more. Okay. There it was. Okay. Walter uh, Conkright. Uh, talking about Sam Huff. So he was a big deal, um, a huge deal. Uh, Grew up in uh, West Virginia, and if you can believe it, uh, he was the son of a coal miner and grew up in a mining camp known as Number Nine, outside Farmington, West Virginia. How Mm -hmm.
0: tough is that? Sounds tough.
1: Yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, the Giants... uh, Famous for being a defensive team for years and years. They still are. The fans chant defense. Apparently, the chant defense uh, was developed when Sam Huff was there. And they end the obituary with a quote. Isn't it
0: defense? I'm sorry. Yes,
1: you're right. You're right. Uh, I wasn't going to chant, but you're on to it. And this is what Huff says. I never let up on anybody. I don't think I ever quit on a play. If you had a football, I was going to hit you. And when I hit you, I tried to hit you hard enough. To hurt you. That's the way the game <laughs> should be played. Okay. So, Ooh. I mean, the NFL, you know, probably doesn't really dwell on the violent aspect. I mean, it is what it is, and uh, uh, it obviously is a violent game, as they like to say. Um, you know, basketball is a contact sport, football is a collision sport, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's truly a violent game. But you won't hear anybody talking about it. You won't hear the word violence on a broadcast. That is how the NFL made its brand. That's how they chose to stand out. That's, believe it or not, better or worse, was a true trigger to their popularity. What do you
0: mean? That's how they...
1: They were They were the violent game. They were a violent game, and they right. were attracting fans on that basis.
0: But they made a point of not mentioning this No, it's they violent. made it.
1: They mentioned it then. Oh, okay. Once they became popular and they tried to become a little more uh, family friendly, okay, uh, you didn't hear that so much, mm-hmm. and yet it's probably more violent now than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. So, in any event, he was uh, an icon, and uh, you know, sort of the face of the of the league for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So then we saw an article about uh, Chicago, not the city, not the city, no. Mm. The, the, uh, musical, the musical. The musical by Candor and Ebb. Yeah. And this really... Uh, what, what the article is about, uh, it's an anniversary, and normally an anniversary article is about, you know, the show opened 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, that's not really what this is about. The, the show originally opened in the uh, 70s, and it was not well received. Um, but uh, it was revived, in a sense, by encores. Now, we... I've mentioned Encores before because we are fans of Encores and we go there. Encores is the uh, theater organization that stages um, uh, basically what they call concert performances uh, of shows that the thought is, generally speaking, aren't likely to attract a full stage revival. But they're worth seeing. So they might have been staged 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And they think there's some music in there that people might like. So that's how it originally came about. And we were subscribed to the So they song don't do course.
0: sound of music. They don't do right. uh, My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady. They're, they're, they're not doing the songs. They're the, not doing the West ones Lights where Stars. you're humming all or, the songs along. No, they're, they're, they're trying to. You things you know, wouldn't know. Things hidden so, gems. Hidden gems. And nothing but, but they're,
1: they're. If it's economically likely to lead to a revival because it's that popular, that's not their thing. It's something you wouldn't see otherwise. That's their mission. Right. So, uh, and, and we have and seen
0: some that are quite good. Quite good, and we've also seen some that I gems guess. that should remain hidden. But they have one or two great songs, one or two yeah, great yeah, numbers, yeah. and and
1: and and it's a challenge, uh, of course, because the performers are only there for ten days. In other words, they do a reading, uh, they rehearse to some degree, and they put it together with uh, minimal uh, backgrounds. Uh, in 10 days, and it used to be, and less so now, I think, they would carry the scripts with them. They often had the loose leaves with the scripts. They would look down and read well, their lines. Well, the
0: beginning productions, the, the, the costumes were minimal. Right. And the, and they held the scripts. Yeah. And there was, you know, almost no choreography, et cetera. And it, I mean, now that's changed. It's blown out. Yeah.
1: Because, you know, it's, be, it's a vehicle. If it's a vehicle often for performers. I don't think they get paid very much, but they get to be seen. And they might be cast in real shows that have long runs. Whatever. So anyway, so we go. We we were at the encore's production of Chicago in 1996. We were there. Well, that was early on. Well, no, but my point is, no, no. It was
0: early on for Encores. So. It was early
1: on for Encores. Right. And Right. Yeah. But not so one so of the it, first. It, might, maybe it would, might have been there second or third year or something like yeah. that. And, uh, and again, we I think We were there. I mean,
0: we didn't even have... I don't even think we had a No, we had a, a subscription. subscription. I think we did. We were sitting Yeah. like under the balcony. Oh, really?
1: Oh, that was a beer mezzanine? Yeah, beer I'm, mezzanine. Yeah, that's a bad like, place and to and sit. And it was super All right. hot. All right. I don't we didn't know have what month it was. Okay, so we didn't have a subscription. We were sweating bullets. Right. And it was as uncomfortable as And we didn't know be. much about
0: Chicago. We knew nothing about no it. Because no one did. Right. And they come on and... Not I was, looking forward to it. Sweating bullets. I was looking
1: forward to it. And uh, I don't sweat too much. But in any of we're, we're watching the show. And uh, they start from the opening number. It is fantastic. Well, more to the point, even besides whether it was fantastic or not, the crowd was going crazy from the jump. They do crazy. their opening number and... It was great, and huge ovation, huge standing ovation. And there might be 10 songs in the show. They got a standing ovation every single song, and you're saying to yourself, what the heck is going on? I mean, we've seen some of these shows before. The crowd tends to like it. They're sympathetic. They like their performers, but never saw anything like this. And again, it's just a weekend of performances. It's four or five performances, and it's like a lightning bolt. Well, what happened was, that it was so popular uh, and so well-received that it was then staged uh, they by took the Weister it to family. They took it to Broadway. This has happened with one or two shows, and it happened the first time with Chicago, and it was a tr- the same success when they staged it on a regular Broadway production, and it's run for 20, 25 years. It's, I think it's still running. It is still running. It's a, it's a crazy story. But what's great about this article is that it's a brief interview were the folks who were involved, the actors and the director involved, in that 1996 production. And it turns out that they were as flabbergasted as we were. I mean, they have James Norton, who played Billy Flynn in Chicago. And this is his quote, That first opening night at Encores left a tremendous impression on me. I was standing backstage, and at the end of the first number, the audience exploded. It was the kind of sound you just don't hear very often in theater, or certainly not often enough. They have Joel Gray saying, I remember standing next to James Norton. We looked at each other in pure amazement and joy. John Cantor, the composer, said, I never experienced anything like this. Fred Ebb wrote the words, and I didn't know much about encores. We were unprepared. Uh, And it was insane. So... What's great about this article, for me at least, is that we had that experience in that weekend, sitting watching this and having, just being, you know, mind-blowing experience. And the performers are experiencing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting there, I mean, a guy like James Norton is not on in the first number. He's watching all that jazz the first number, Mm -hmm. and he's saying, what the heck is happening here? Mm -hmm. And by the time he gets on, the crowd is totally into it and totally carried away. So it's just one of those great uh, theater experiences. Just amazing. Yeah, so... Under live it. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, well, then... Uh, well, Why don't you talk about Eugene Sandow? And then I'll talk about Odell no,
0: Beckham. No, do,
1: do, do your Odell, Odell? Yeah, All right.
0: You're on a roll. Dude. I'm on a roll?
1: That, that so rarely happens. Well, the only thing to say about... I, I want to say something about Odell Beckham. Oh. Uh, in this way. Odell Beckham happened was the great receiver for the Giants, but he was always uh, mercurial. He was a difficult guy. And he made the great one-handed catch on the Dallas Cowboy game on a Monday night and became the most famous football player for about 15 minutes in the NFL. And uh, then there was always kind of uh, infighting and difficulties with management and with other players. And they eventually traded him. And Many people thought they didn't get a full value back, went to the Browns. He was going to make that a great team. And not surprisingly, that didn't work out at all. And after a couple of years, some injuries and just, uh, again, bad feelings with management. They cut him last week. Now he's on another team. So, uh, but the article in the Times makes an interesting point, And that is that uh, Beckham, notwithstanding how skilled he is, put aside the injury-proven aspect of it, um, would never help the team. In other words, the team always played better without Beckham. The Giants played better when Beckham was hurt. They have the specific numbers for the Browns playing better when Beckham's hurt. Um, why do they say that? They said uh, after they traded for Beckham, the Browns did in March 2019. There was a lot of hype, but they finished 6-10. The next year, Beckham tore his uh, anterior cruciate ligament uh, seven weeks into the season, but the Browns improved to 11-5. Um and there's a reason for this. And they go on with more details about so what's it. what's the reason? His, the reason is this, and I think it's actually valid, um, that when you have a guy who's as big a star and also sort of, you know, very demanding in the sense of he thinks he's, and he's often right, is the most talented player on the field, he wants to get the ball a lot. And receivers are famous for this. Well, a lot of quarterbacks are intimidated by that. And they end up getting distracted by that, not throwing to the open man, but throwing to the guy who's demanding the ball, who's the big star. And their numbers suffer. And they show here, that's what happened to Baker Mayfield. That Baker Mayfield, the young quarterback of the Browns, did much better when Beckham was not in the game because he didn't have to think about what Beckham was complaining about or that he wanted the ball. or He didn't have to look at Beckham first. He just ran the offense. They give other examples. Brett Favre, same thing. He had Sterling Sharp. You know, Sterling Sharp, Sharp, the man of the ball. Favre's numbers when Sterling Sharp was there were okay. As soon as Sterling Sharp was gone, his numbers improved. Matthew Stafford, the same thing with Calvin Johnson's receiver. I can remember when Eli Manning started with the Giants, Jeremy Shockey was on the team. Jeremy Shockey, same thing. The man of the ball, his intimidating presence. As soon as they got rid of Shockey, suddenly Manning's numbers were better. So you have this kind of counterintuitive thing. You lose your best receiver, and the quarterback's better, and the team is better. So, it's kind of a weird uh, dynamic, but uh, they have the numbers and the times to kind of back it up, and uh, it kind of makes sense.
0: So that uh, he, it's just the quarterback gets a chance to make the best play, not the. Yeah, okay. exactly. In other
1: words, all quarterbacks go through progressions. They have a first priority, second priority, and third priority. And if you can just do that without thinking, I have to give the ball to so and so, I have to give the ball to so and so, you're going to do better. The but theory.
0: don't they have to do what the play is? No, but, but the
1: play is a series of progressions. Okay. Okay, the play it always has a one option, a second option, and a third option. And they're supposed to make a judgment quickly as to whether the first option's available or not, second is available or not, okay. or whether they should wait on the third. And it's easier, apparently, to do that with a clear head than to say, no, no, I just got to throw it to the on the first option because this guy is going to complain if he doesn't get the ball.
0: Well, that's kind of tough. Yeah, what's the point of having a star then?
1: Well, it, it is tough, and it, it 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 raises a legitimate question. But you know, football is a team game. It's a man's game. And oh, that's that's right. It is a man's
0: game. Oh, you thought I wasn't listening? <laughs> You're right. I thought you weren't listening. Okay. So speaking of men. Oh, whoa. That, well, this
1: is such a such
0: a segue, honey. That's
1: fantastic. You got uh, me here.
0: Wall Street Journal. You're on a roll. Had a little article about men wearing spanks. <laughs> Do you know men wear Spanx? Uh, no, I don't think Sam Huff wore Spanx. No, well, but he probably wore tight pants, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, so the article wasn't that interesting. It yeah. was just like uh, so-and-so wore this uh, you know, Spanx T-shirt uh, for his wedding so it could smooth all the lumps out or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, I mean, uh, but what was fun about the article was... Um, It was, uh, they had a picture of like an old-timey bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the caption, it was Eugene Sandow. I know, one of your favorites. One of my favorites because he is, you know, he he kind of invented sort of the uh, bodybuilding entertainment uh, competition world to some extent. I knew of him because uh, he inspired uh, the sculptor and uh, city planner Hendrik uh, Christian Andersen that I, I wrote about uh, for my master's thesis. But Eugene Sandow was a very interesting rock star of a guy. Yeah. And uh, he was Prussian. He was born in uh, some town that uh, is now in Russia in
1: 1867.
0: Yeah. And uh, somehow he... You know, becomes a you know circus performer, strongman. Yeah. You know, like you see in the cartoons, right? right? And it was all about lifting this or lifting that, and people ooing and ahhing. And um, he, uh, you know, uh, is mentored uh, by various people and makes his way to the U.S. and actually is in a show uh, for uh, Flo Ziegfeld. Mm in the 1893 Columbian Exposition mm-hmm. in Chicago. And F- Ziegfeld notices that nobody is that interested in how much he lifts. You know, I mean, when you think about it, it is kind of um, not ephemeral. I don't know what the word is, but you're, you're just sitting there, and, you know, you're at a distance. You would, He's lifting something. It seems very heavy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but it's uh, that. But they did enjoy watching him pose. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Ziegfeld encourages him to do more and more sort of choreography of the posing, and uh, it really becomes... Uh, it, it, one of the articles I read said it, it's one of Ziegfeld's first big shows. You oh. know, um, his One of his great performers. And I had read when I was um, doing research for my thesis that uh, they actually sold... Uh, Pictures of him, mm. you know, um, cards with his photograph, and think about this: this is in you know 1890s. That's early mm. uh, for uh, photography still, and um, that at after the show, women would pay money to meet with him mm. after the show, and perhaps you know. Um, Feel his biceps, really, et cetera. Yes, oh, that's very um, colored. Yeah. so he goes back. Uh, he he, um, he tours around the U.S. a bit, and then goes back to England. He actually opens a gym, mm-hmm. and I don't re- rem- I don't know if you remember me telling you about this, but he, I think he had more than one gym actually, and they had stunning locker rooms. They had Oriental rugs around. They had um, you know music playing, mm-hmm. some kind of uh, you know. Uh, not a band, but, uh, you know, chamber music playing in the background. Mm-hmm. And he encouraged women to lift. He said, it's ridiculous. Women won't, you know, start looking like men or have unattractive muscles. They, they should lift, too. Mm-hmm. In fact, in one competition when he was younger, he got beat by a woman who could lift more than he could. Really? Um, that doesn't make so, any sense. Anyway, so yeah. he was funny. He was also, oh, while in the 90s when he was in the U.S., yeah. he was in a film... Okay? There's a film, uh, an early, you know, uh, playing around with um, film, uh, an early uh, Edison film Mm. that you can see online if you want to, him doing the flexing. Mm. And they say that he built his uh, body based on the famous Greek statues, that he would measure the proportions of the classical Greek statues. and uh, try to emulate them in his workout, mm-hmm. so that he would look like that. And he did have there was a series of photographs taken of him where he's posing uh, like famous uh, Greek statues, like Dying Gaul, uh, et cetera. Um, so, it, I mean, he was uh, quite uh, quite a fun character. Um, you know, all kinds of firsts there. 1901, he does the first uh, major bodybuilding competition. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are several judges. One of the judges is Arthur Conan Doyle. Really? Yes. He was buddies with him for some reason. And um, so very, very interesting, uh, fun guy who, you know, as I said, you know, was right there at the beginning, inventing uh, the whole beloved sport of bodybuilding. You know, there's a um, Sandow Award, isn't there? yeah there's a, for a body really, building yeah and uh it's a little the statue itself is a little portrait of him really? also the um at a certain point the um British Museum takes a live body cast of him mm. uh his body to commemorate it to i don't know what and I, I think it stays in the basement for a number of years but yeah. uh I don't think it's too famous. I don't think it's on display. Hmm. I hope he's wearing a Spanx
1: when they. Uh, Eugene
0: Sandow.
1: Yeah, okay. It's right up there with Sam Huff. I mean, it's just that different year.
0: Who knew? And nothing of this in the article. No. Well, it's embarrassing because, you know, these guys are having to wear Spanx and Sandow. No Spanx. Yeah. <laughs> briefly, briefly attired.
1: Yes. Uh, all right. So there was also, uh, there was an obituary of uh, another icon, Helene Fortunoff. Right?
0: Well, you know, we get excited when we see the, the name Fortunoff. Yes. Uh, because, you know, first of all, I think you, you you have you, back in the day, bought me some very nice things. Jewelry. Did I? From Fortunoff. Is that me? Yeah, I did. Yeah. But that was it's the jewelry store in the, the yeah, wedding no, I, necklace was from Fortunoff. Yeah, no, I, I right? know I bought it. Um, but the thing is, Fortunoff's didn't start out in the jewelry business. No, no, Helene Fortunoff, okay, who was married to Alan Fortunoff, the son of the original founders yeah. of the store. Where was the store? In Brooklyn? Well, there's was a store in Brooklyn, there's a store in Westbrook. The, the, the original, original the, store. The original store was in Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, Helene marries Alan. He's working in his parents' houseware stores. And she, she's like, hey, why don't we sell jewelry? This seems good. Yeah. And, uh, but you grew up,
1: the other reason. I grew up in the shadow of Fortunoff. So I experienced Fortunoff differently because my mother worked at Fortunoff for four years. And what I mean by off is they had a big store in Westbury and it was called Roosevelt Field. And it was mostly housewares. I know there are some other things attached to it. Well, they had jewelry and They had some jewelry. They also even had some of the outdoor furniture and stuff like that. But they were really housewares. And uh, my mother, you know, did various things there, some cashier work, some bookkeeping, and got to know the folks there. And when she was working, the fortunate that she knew uh, it was uh, Marty Ford's office, a woman who passed away in, in the 80s. Because and Marty Forsenoff was one of the original siblings, so Alan. Right, so she
0: was Alan's sister. Sister. Right. Helene's sister-in-law.
1: Right, and Helene uh, marries Alan and says, "You know something? I think we should concentrate on the jewelry business." Uh, and she spearheads their entry into well, jewelry. Well, we don't
0: know who said what to whom. No, but, but that's at the some idea. point they divided. The word the housewares yeah. went to Marjorie and her husband yeah. or, or were, you know, controlled by them. Right. And uh, Alan and Helene took charge yeah. of silver and jewelry. Right.
1: My mother had a very positive view of the Forstner family, and that was Marjorie. Uh, and they do say in the article that uh, the Westbury store was fantastically profitable for the Forstners, But they made some money clearly. In jewelry, and and you're right. I used to go to the Fortuneoff uh, jewelry store, which was in the '50s, I believe. Yeah, they had in Manhattan, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, it was a jewelry store. I mean, it was nice. They had a lot of merchandise.
0: Well, I tell you what I liked about this um, obituary yeah. is uh, talking about the young um, Mrs. Fortunoff, yeah. Helene. Okay, yeah. she um, she marries Alan, and she you know goes to work yeah. in the store right. with him. All right, in Brooklyn, and she soon gives birth to her first child and returns to the store two weeks after giving birth. Yeah. Right. Eventually, she's going to have six kids, oh, I didn't and every time she goes right back to work. Yeah. All right. I always wanted a family and a career, and no one ever told me I couldn't have both. She admits that doing both was possible because she had staff at home uh, to manage her home while she worked full-time. Well, there's a great
1: quote about that. you see Yes,
0: that? this is a great quote. I made $50 a week and paid the baby nurse $60. I knew within a period of months I'd be making $100 a week right all right i tell women if their child care isn't adequate they're going to worry and it will affect their job performance it is better to get the help you need and maybe come up short the first year in the long run you definitely come out and, ahead. and i think that's entirely correct i i agree i totally agree she says she was still able to spend quality time with yeah. her children all right so, yeah. so you don't
1: stint on that and, uh, and at the same time, you preserve the possibility of having a career. I do think that's the way to do it.
0: She also took them to work.
1: Uh, yeah. It says, so.
0: as, you know, as, as soon as they were able to crawl, yeah. she said, eventually, uh, five out of six of the kids would work at the store.
1: Yeah. There also was a nice quote from Lauren McCall. Lauren McCall was uh, apparently the, the model that they used, or spokesperson, if you will, for Forstinoff's Jewelry. And there's some award ceremony later on. uh, And the Bacola quote is, one of the perks of a lifetime career in entertainment is that you learn to recognize real talent when you see it. Uh, She saw that talent in Miss Fortunoff, who lifted her company from small stores in Brooklyn to the heights of retail success. Uh, So there you go.
0: Yeah. All right, so that was uh, a nice story about a... um Successful businesswoman. And we had to do some From research. We had to do some research to figure well, out, the to story. out the we needed to straighten out the whole r-
1: relationship. But now we've straightened it out. You know, we went up on the times. So finally, uh, it turns out today is the last day in the radio career of Steve Summers. So Steve Summers, you ask, who's he? Uh, Steve Summers is a guy. I, I did
0: literally ask that. Yes.
1: <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> And you were disappointed in the answer. Because he is a guy. He, he's
0: not my favorite. No, okay. he's not mine
1: either. Radio Jack at uh, WFAN is a guy who does uh, talk shows, sports talk shows for WFN By, by sports talk shows, I mean this. Um, he's would, he was, he's been the late night guy for some years, but he was often a utility player. He had all different times that he was working on shows, but he lived close enough that he would fill in. He'd be on for a few hours before a baseball game, a few hours after a baseball game, He'd, uh, when they lost some personnel or gained some personnel, he'd, he'd fill the gaps, whatever it was. Uh, and as he liked to say, you know, one of his big advantages, he didn't cost very much. Uh, he was um, uh, a schmoozer. He was always called the schmoozer. And uh, he, I was going to say he didn't know very much about sports, but I have no idea how much he knew about sports because he just never talked about sports. He was just sort of chat with people and listen to them and make kind of corny jokes and you would think you don't have a career that way except he came from san francisco to new york when wfan began 34 years ago and he's been there ever since and he's had the longest tenure of all the folks there and he didn't all he had was this shtick if you put it uh it's uh You know, some people will say it will be a show about nothing. Well, show about nothing is the right phrase because at one point there was some question as to whether it was adding some value to the station or maybe it always was a question. Ah, Because his his shtick and his shows, he was nice to people. He was on very late at night. So you'd get someone calling at 1 or 2 or 3 in the morning. And if you know radio, uh, not surprising... These people maybe were interested in sports, but they were lonely often. Or they were people who had issues. They were people trying to get off over the loss of a, a husband uh, or, or a wife or something like that. Or they, and uh, he would, unlike many of the other guys on the station, uh, he would just listen to them and let them talk and let them vent and express interest in their lives. And it was a different kind of show. So there were people like, you know, they were, I read the articles, Doris from Regal Park, uh, Jason from Manhattan. Doris from Regal Park, I remember, Doris from Regal Park was a, a smoker with a heavy cough. Right. And you always felt that Doris was not going to survive the call. That she was. But gonna, she
0: didn't just call him, right? I, 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 I feel like yes. I heard her all times
1: of the yeah. day. She said different times, but he would stay on the phone with her. Okay. The other folks would kind of handle her and try to get her off the phone. And he would let her go on. You know, and he was everybody's friend. So he was a gentle soul. But being a, so is a question does he fit and how strong an audience uh, did he really have? Well, one thing that helped him was, as I said, show about nothing. He got a call one day from Jerry from Queens, and Jerry from Queens turned out to be Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Seinfeld uh, expressed tremendous admiration for Steve Summers and became, you know, a periodic caller. And it kind of raised, and, and again, Jerry Seinfeld, this was more. Closer to the height of the Seinfeld show, you know, is a big deal, and it raised his stature, uh, summer stature, at the station. And Jerry Seinfeld happens to be a tremendous Mets fan, so he would call and talk about baseball. And you've heard Seinfeld talk about baseball; he yes. knows what he's talking about. So um, he survived, and he stayed at the station, and he sort of filled a role. Uh, and people were calling in today to pay as an homage. And one of the people called and it was, you know, Mike Francesa couldn't have been more different. It's very difficult, kind of somewhat self-important. And frankly, he had no time for Steve Summers when he was on the radio. He would No one would ask him about Summers. They knew he didn't like him too much or wasn't too interested. But, uh, you know, as uh, Francesa said, you know, one of the great things about this station was very different styles, very different approaches. I respect your approach, Steve. Different than mine. Whatever. Anyway, one funny thing I picked up, which was really weird, is this, that um, uh, Chris Olivieri is the name of the guy who now basically runs uh, or, or works for Odyssey as vice president and oversees WFAN. And uh, he's been there for a few years, and he has ended the tenures of uh, Mike Francesa, of Joe Beningo, uh, of Mark Chernoff, who's the station director. They've been turning the page to be younger. Uh, well, it turns out that he produces today a letter that he had written to Steve Summers uh, just uh, seven years into the station, some 27 years ago, when he was in high school and said, you're my favorite uh, you know, radio jock at WFAN. I'm thinking of doing this for a living in the future. Could you please send me your autograph? And uh, what Summers did is he took the letter and he wrote on it, Thank you for your kind words. Very much appreciated. Here's your autograph. I sent it back to him. And he has kept it to Only this years. day. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who decided it was time for Steve Summers to go.
0: Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: although he waited the longest, perhaps. Steve Summers is 74 years old, and it's a youth mm-hmm. business. And if you think, look at all the people they have in the station now, quite a contrast. So, in any event, as I said, I've never been a big fan of Steve Summers. But you have to respect them a little bit, and there are certainly a certain kind of listeners who kind of depended on him and mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed listening to him, and, and the callers were devoted. So it's a style of radio that I think is just is now passe. He had a place. He's had a place.
0: All right. Well, that's, uh, I think, enough.
1: Well, now we can use Steve Summers' slogan because he's gone. It said, Steve Summers, me here, you there. How's that? What do you think? Is that uh, that grab you?
0: I don't know. we'll have to work on that. This is Tamson Granger and Dan. I have you Tamson and Dan read the paper?
1: See you next week.